Here endeth that which Rumil wrote. Here followeth the continuation of Pengalot. Welcome back, everyone, to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we study Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Rumil. And I am joined today by your co-host, my favorite co-host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Theo, from the upcoming Rings of Power series. That's not very nice, considering that I theorize that he's going to become a ring wraith, so very ominous. Exactly. Uh, And we welcome back to the pod our friend Dan, voice of geekdom, a.k.a. Pengalod the Wise. Welcome, Dan. (laughs) Thank you very much, Michael. AKA Theo. It's very, it's very <laughs> nice to be here again. And, and um, we're excited for the topic today because it is one that I think is very timely. We're going to be looking at uh, Tolkien's canon. And the title of this episode is Tolkien's Canon for Dummies, which uh, I intended to be sort of a bit of a, both descriptive and accurate, but also a bit of a joke. Um, we want it to be useful for people who are just discovering Tolkien. But at the same time, the whole idea of canon is very problematic. And there are a lot of dummies out there who are using it wrong uh to to, to be unkind but uh no we're we're, we want to kind of walk through um all the 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 writing all of tolkien's writings and really lay it out in a crystal clear fashion to make clear how unclear things are (laughs) Um, yeah it's going to be as clear as mud by the end of this i think (laughs) yeah yeah and and the reason i really wanted to do this is with the rings of power coming out i think we're all very aware that we're going to see uh, a resurgence of the fandom, a new surge of, of new blood, people who are discovering Lord of the Rings. either Fresh for, meat. Yes, fresh meat, who are discovering it either for the first time or rediscovering it. You know, people who were fans of the films and maybe they enjoyed the films and were casual, but didn't read the books at that time. And now there's this great Rings of Power series. And, and this is the thing that puts them over the edge. And they think to themselves, well, I want to learn a bit more about the lore and I want to I want to read the books. Uh, and getting into that can be a little bit daunting especially when the subject matter of the show that you're wanting to look into more is not lord of the rings this novel that is easy to pick up at the bookstore but it is drawn from a variety of sources so um sussing out the the source material for the show that these viewers are going to be watching it's going to be a challenge and those viewers are going to be running into a new problem that is going to be very prevalent i think but that wasn't around at the time the jackson films came out which is um because the source material is unclear, you're, they're going to have a lot of voices on the internet claiming to tell them what the source material says, what the canon says, and they're going to say very loudly and without nuance, um, this scene was wrong, this scene departs from canon, or this scene is consistent with canon. And the, you know, the, the new person who's coming to Tolkien for the first time is not going to be able to um, understand or suss out the accurate from the inaccurate statements and it's going to be a lot of noise and so i want this episode to kind of be a useful a useful tool for those people uh, that they sort of a reference guide so they can determine all right when people are referring to the book of lost tales are they really referring to something that's canon um and at the end of this i hope people realize the whole idea of canon is maybe not the question you should be asking yourself at all when you when you're going about this which i think makes everything much more fun when you're talking about Tolkien, it's it's one of the things that makes it really wonderful. Um, and uh, I wanted you to do this, Dan, because not only are you very, very knowledgeable about Tolkien in general, but this is a subject you've been thinking about and talking about quite a bit lately. So I think you would be you're the perfect person to sort of walk us through it. 
Yeah, I did a, a broad sort of discussion with this with the Tolkien professor on his podcast a couple of months ago, and um, I think you guys saw that. And so we we had quite a broad ranging discussion of what is canon and what is the concept of canon, um, and it, and it certainly means different things to different people. Corey was talking to me about how, as an academic, he's he he's familiar with the concept of canon in an academic setting, where you talk about the literary canon, i.e., what texts are of significance in the literary world and warrant discussion and study. Primarily, people online, the kind of people that you're you're referencing when you talk about um, dummies, I suppose. <laughs> let's let's call them dummies for the sake of this conversation. Not to be unkind, but the word kind of works. Um, <laughs> the, the, the canon that people are talking about is the kind of canon that people talk about with something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars or, or something where you have lots of different creators creating within one universe in one franchise. And so there's a, there's a corporate aspect to it where the, the kind of the license holders will decide what is significance to the universe and what isn't and and that is the concept of canon in sort of common parlance that kind of framework i think doesn't work so well for tolkien because we're talking about one creator one writer um, who was building a mythology throughout his life um, and the the mythology itself went through redraft upon redraft um, over several decades and, and Tolkien as a writer was somebody who was prepared for this problem because he, he invented, or he didn't invent the concept, but he, he used the, the concept of a, a frame narrative in order to create a distance between the written word on the page and, and kind of the, the events of the story. So what we're reading is, is supposedly within the frame narrative is a translation based upon um, consecutive translations which date back hundreds, thousands of years to this, um, I suppose, kind of prehistoric setting, which is entirely fictional, but is nonetheless supposed to be our own world um, in, a, in a mythic prehistoric state. Um, and that's Middle Earth. Um, so Tolkien started this process when he was a very young man, and it was part of his um, effort. It to sort of uh, create a, a, a fictional history for his, his invented languages. So Tolkien invented a number of languages very early in his life, and the two main ones which we talk about and still reference today were Quenya and Sindarin. Um, Sindarin started off as Gnomish and then became Sindarin later on. Um, but, but that was the justification for writing that mythology. And so the two work in tandem. And so it's it's just a very much more complex issue to talk about canon with Tolkien than it is with any other kind of popular franchise that we talk about on the big screen or the small screen um, because of the kind of man that he was and the kind of writer that he was. Um, and then as, as it comes to adaptations and so on, those operate, I think, within their own canon and their own universe. It, they're their own thing, which were inspired by Tolkien's works, but have their own internal canon. Yeah, and that's a really important point there, inspired by, and they're using the phrase based on for the Rings of Power series. Right. So let's look at it, you know, we have to keep that in mind at all times. Based on is very different than adapted from, is very different from inspired by. Um, so that's important to remember too as the, as the series comes out. 
Because if Rings of Power was a strict adaptation, it would be, and I've said this before on this podcast, it would be told in like documentary style. Uh, because mm-hmm. the text it's drawn from is is a timeline. It's 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 um, you're getting information sort of at a at a distance. You're not given a complete narrative. So if it was a true adaptation, they wouldn't be able to give you a complete narrative. They'd be able to give you kind of like an an overview, maybe with uh, uh, you would have somebody doing voiceover, right? And that's not actually what anybody wants. And so people are complaining about, well, it's not a a true adaptation. Well, I, when they say that, I'm not sure they have completely thought through what a true adaptation would be if they were really sticking to the mode of the texts that the show is based on. Mm-hmm. And Dan, before I throw it to you, I kind of want to take this opportunity to explain the introductory quote and the names I gave everyone, which usually we don't explain the joke, but we try and give people names that relate to the the topic uh, of the day or, you know, whatever scene we're talking about from the Jackson films or whatever. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a deep cut, so people won't automatically get it. But, you know, I, I referenced, I read a quote from The Lost Road, which is it canon, is it not? But that's like some of his early writings. Rumil and Pengalot are two characters from an earlier frame narrative that he was exploring. Um, in the early versions, you know, Tolkien was playing around with, well, maybe we we have an Englishman who's lost at sea and, you know, gets shipwrecked and he finds this, you know, the cottage of lost play and he discovers the elves and um, there's a version of this, okay, he encounters wise men and the account we're going to get in the Silmarillion, or what later became the Silmarillion, he was originally playing with that just being this Englishman writing down the stories he got from these elvish scholars that he encountered after getting shipwrecked, right? And uh, so Pengalad is one of the elvish historians from Gondolin, mm-hmm. you know, and there's various versions of that as well. And so you get to be from Gondolin, Pengalad the Wise. Rumil was another historian. And so when he writes about, you talked about Tolkien being very aware of the effect of the frame and the narrator in the narrative that he's writing. He played around with, well, Rumil said this, and then Pengalad would pick it up and say, so Rumil said that, I disagree. And he would have, play with two different versions within the narrative that he's deliberately writing. And uh, so I, ge- I gave you the, the Pengalad. I think Pengalad's a little more important in my, in my view. Um, but also, I, <laughs> I want to reference the fact that on our Wheel of Time podcast, we use one of the ad spots to run ads for the, Wheel, for the Lord of the Rings podcast and we did a little joke where uh jen is coming to see the doctor and she says she's suffering from this malady you know she's been talking in her sleep she yells out Tolkien quotes in her sleep and and, and i say <laughs> i diagnose her oh you're you're Tolkien in your sleep it's like a very dumb joke but the name of my character the doctor i was dr pengalad and so this is i'm sure nobody got it especially listeners to the wheel of time uh show because they're not necessarily super deep into Tolkien. So I, mm-hmm. I, I'm taking this opportunity to explain a joke I made in an ad on another podcast because I don't want it to go totally to waste. <laughs> Thereby making the joke that much funnier. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rumil was actually was mentioned in the published Silmarillion as well. So um, he's, he's uh, one of the scholars of the West, in the West, in, in Valinor, um, who was said to have invented one of the early forms of um, written language. Now, this uh, is why we have him on, folks. Right, and then and then Feanor took took it over, right, and, and invented different yeah. runes, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, that's a character that persisted. Um, and actually, uh, you mentioned uh, the 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 Mariner, who um, is the the main character of the frame story of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, that character evolved into a character called Elfwinia, 
who that's an Anglo-Saxon word which means elf friend, which if you know about later characters in Numenor, um, should mean something to you too. Right. Um, Alfwinia uh, was a, a, a frame character which a large body of the, the text that the published Silmarillion was based upon, it, he was still the frame character for those um, older drafts of the Silmarillion pre-Lord of the Rings. So the published Silmarillion doesn't have a frame story. Uh, this is just something that Christopher Tolkien kind of um, uh, kind of remonstrated about a little because he, he, he thought that the Silmarillion perhaps might have needed a frame story and, and that perhaps that was responsible for some of the, the bad critical reception of the Silmarillion when it was first published. Uh, that that lack of a frame story kind of held uh, readers back from being able to relate to it in the same way that they could for The Lord of the Rings, with The Lord of the Rings having a very um, transparent frame story in terms of it being part of the Red Book of Westmarch and having that introduction where Tolkien talks about how he translated it and stuff. Um, so, but part, a, a large part of this, the text that the Silmarillion is based upon has that frame narrative in its original form. It's just that t Christopher extracted that and and just presented it as one one consistent narrative without the frame story, um, which is an interesting thing to note as we talk about canon. And before we get too far afield and too deeply into it, let's sort of back up and just cover the basics for us. You know, if someone's looking to discover Tolkien for the first time. And they're wanting to read, you know, read Tolkien's text and get into the Legendarium. You know, what are the major published works and unpublished works? And, you know, go on and on from there. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the first published work that's part of the, the Middle Earth canon, if we want to use that word as a placeholder, uh, is obviously The Hobbit, published in 1937 um, to critical acclaim and, and great success. Tolkien never intended to publish it, but it was kind of like an accident that um, Unwin kind of got hold of a copy of it and loved it and wanted to publish it. And, um, and that was the start of the whole beautiful journey that Tolkien went on for the rest of his life. Um, the Hobbit was written for Tolkien's children, and it wasn't initially in my opinion wasn't initially conceived of as being part of the Silmarillion world it just had references to the Silmarillion in it um he probably couldn't know, help he, himself he, right I mean he didn't intend it to be that right. way but his mind was so full of Middle Earth all the time that it couldn't help but yeah. seep into the the children's story he was writing right and, and his children grew up with those stories too so he they were familiar with that and and so that was part of how the Hobbit came to be um and so it was it was kind of conceived as being loosely a later version of the same world but it wasn't it, it wasn't part of the framework in any meaningful measurable sense it was just a story um and uh it, we see throughout the course of the hobbit it becomes a more serious tale it, it starts off very much a children's tale and then it ends up becoming something more it's almost like a, a norse saga at the end <laughs> Um, and so it became a more serious work as he worked on it and developed it. Um, retroactively, we certainly consider The Hobbit as being part of the Legendarium. Um, shortly after publication, he, he was approached to, to uh, publish a sequel and work on a sequel. And so Tolkien had already been working on The Silmarillion for something like 20 years at this point. And um, so he, he tried to get The Silmarillion published. The publishers came back and said, no, this is weird and too Celtic was the phrase that was used, which really offended him because it wasn't. It was, he, no he had such a, thing. 
he had a slight aversion to things Celtic, um, even though you can certainly argue that there's a Celtic influence in places, but uh, but he was very much an Anglo-Saxon professor who loved the Anglo-Saxon world, and and that was the the genesis of the mythology was it, it being a mythology for England, um, and that that idea faded over time as other things came in, and and certainly as the Hobbit kind of interrupted that mode of thought, it became less of a mythology for England and more of a mythology for the world, um, and it became more of a nebulous concept over time. Um, and then, of course, we have The Lord of the Rings, published in 1954 and 55, which I, I consider the core of Tolkien's canon. Um, again, I'm using that word as a placeholder. Um, at, but prior to The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien also published a second edition of The Hobbit. Um, and this was, again, kind of an accident, how it happened. He, he, he put together some revisions in order to make the, the, the Hobbit consistent with The Lord of the Rings storyline. Um, for those who don't know, the first edition of The Hobbit actually has a, a very kind of friendly, uh, benevolent golem. <laughs> um, we, the, the version that we all know, that we all, certainly the three of us all grew up reading with Gollum, this maniacal creature who screams at Bilbo, we hate it forever, etc. That wasn't in the first version of The Hobbit. And so that's the reason for, in the early chapters of The Lord of the Rings, the references to the story that, Bilbo told the dwarves, which wasn't the true story. He lied to everybody and he, he published a version of the story which wasn't true. Um, and then he later, you know, told Frodo the truth and Gandalf the truth and, and the truth came out. And so he told the whole story at the Council of Elrond, which we see in the course of the story of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and so that's the, the kind of in-universe explanation for the changes that we see to the Hobbit's second edition, which was published shortly before the, the Lord of the Rings, uh, I believe in 1951, was the second edition of The Hobbit. And let's pause for a second oh. to just uh, ruminate on the what the experience must have been like for people who loved The Hobbit, excitedly mm -hmm. discovered that a you know new volume of the, the story was going to be coming out by this wonderful author, The Lord of the Rings. Um, great, I'm going to read The Lord of the Rings. And then discovering that the version of The Hobbit that they had grown up on, that first edition, is now inaccurate and, you know, kind of changing things around and making reference to a version of the story that they hadn't read, right? That would be, that would be, uh, authors don't do that anymore, um, yeah. nor did they really at the time. I mean, it was really a unique thing and uh, Tolkien kind of got away with it because he's Tolkien. Yeah, the, the unreliable narrator kind of device I talk about sometimes is... It's kind of a misleading way of framing the way that Tolkien used that device, because you can call it that, but it, it's not... Tolkien is not doing kind of, for instance, what George R. R. Martin does in the A Song of Ice and Fire books, where he has chapters which are point-of-view chapters which follow a character, and, and there are transparently things within those chapters that are misleading you, because you're getting the character's point of view and not a third-person narrator who is objective. You're getting... You know, third person Lannister's. omniscient as we say yes exactly um and so it, tolkien is not doing that he's not intentionally misleading you but he is he is to an extent creating a a, a kind of a distance between the reader and the real story um which allows for a degree of subjectivity and and flexibility in terms of what the narrative is actually telling us which is just genius and 
there are other examples. He he was I think he was slightly inspired by William Morris. Um, William Morris's poem written in the nineteenth century, which was uh, uh, the Earthly Paradise, published in eighteen sixty eight to eighteen seventy over several volumes, was it was a big influence on on his use of that sort of device. So uh, we've got the Hobbit. We've got the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. I know there are a lot of other things written by Tolkien. So give us the next uh, yeah. book that was published in his lifetime. Uh, so, well, the next book that was published in his lifetime is The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which was a, a collection of poetry, which uh, some of which was certainly um, inspired by Tom Bombadil. There were three Tom Bombadil poems in there. Um, and so you can you can debate over how canon this stuff is. Um some of it is presented as mythology within mythology, so it's almost like the mythology of the hobbits in places that you get in some of those poems, which um, are, are obviously kind of not necessarily part of the framework of, let's say, the Silmarillion, um, but nonetheless are are definitely inspired by Middle-earth. But it's, it's kind of a, a light-hearted collection of poetry. The poetry in there is gorgeous, a lot of it is great, but it's... It's debatable how historical it is within the, the fictional frame. It's very true to the nature of Tom Bombadil, though. It's very, um, as you said, whimsical and and mm. just f- it's fun. It's actually a, a very fun read. It's lighthearted. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm cr- I'm creating a video about Tom Bombadil at the moment, actually. So I'll be talking about some of this in an upcoming in an upcoming video, which I'm just about finishing the script and um, the recording process for. So uh, nice. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but so that even though that poetry was published after Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. he had been playing with the with the Tom Bombadil character before Lord of the Rings. And that's kind of how Tom Bombadil ended up finding his way into the narrative, even though he seems a little bit out of place. Yeah, he's out of place because he has been pulled into Middle Earth from a a poem that he wrote in the 20s for for his children. Tom Bombadil was inspired by one of Michael's uh, childhood dolls, one of his children's dolls. Um, which was a, is a Dutch doll um, for those who are into children's historical <laughs> children's t- toys. Um, and so it was, it was a funny story about uh, one of Tolkien's other children flushing this toy down the toilet, actually. Um, <laughs> those are some heavy-duty pipes if that didn't clog the toilet. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, they, he, they managed to retrieve the okay. toy. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, and so Tom Bombadil is kind of out of place, and, and Tolkien acknowledges this in his published correspondence and so on. Um, and, and his place is at a deliberate mystery in, in the whole mythology, um, which you can speculate on, and, and it's fun to speculate on. But uh, yeah, it's, he's an interesting character in and of himself. And, um, right. Uh, and so the, the, so the first poem in that collection is, does predate The Lord of the Rings. Um, and then he... The second kind of follow-up, the sequel to that, is um, it's a story about Tom Bombadil visiting a friend in the Shire, which I would argue is probably the most canon poem in that collection. Uh, there's also there's the Arendil poem as well, and some of the earlier versions of that poem, which a, a, a late version ended up in The Lord of the Rings and was attributed within the fictional frame to Bilbo. So yeah, that that's so that's the next published work um, during his lifetime, and the only one during his lifetime, because he spent more or less the rest of his life redrafting the Silmarillion, and we know that was published posthumously. So let's get into that, um, because I think that would people who are completely new to Tolkien, it might surprise them to learn that the Silmarillion 
the Silmarillion that they've heard so much about um, was actually never really quite finished by by Tolkien, uh, and it was published posthumously. So explain that a little bit. Is the Silmarillion purely a work of authorship by J.R.R. Tolkien, or were there other contributors? Uh, there were other minor contributors. Um, it, upon Tol- Tolkien's death in 1973, his son Christopher was appointed his li- literary executor meaning that he was in control of the future publications and um, was the essentially the copyright owner who was directing um, the, the body of work that was published posthumously. And so Christopher took this role very, very seriously and dedicated the rest of his life to that role. The Silmarillion that we had in 1977 was published by Christopher. Uh, he took five years editing it and he, he took it upon himself to do that because he, he simply couldn't conceive of not publishing the Silmarillion. Um, I already mentioned that the, the Silmarillion was kind of not necessarily critically well-received um, at the time. People found it very strange, and um, the, it still is strange. <laughs> <laughs> but right. the, but the, the, obviously the nomenclature, the Elvish names, you know, the, the kind of the mode of it, how formal it is, is, is very different to the Lord of the Rings. It's been said that the Silmarillion would never be published today, that it just mm-hmm. wouldn't happen to, to, to out there. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, a, a success the size of the Lord of the Rings, if it happened today, does give you a lot of power to, to get stuff done. Um, you know, I mentioned George R. R. Martin. He's, we've got his um, series Fire and Blood, which is supposed to be a two-part series, which is kind of his Silmarillion. So, it, yeah, it probably wouldn't have... Um, probably wouldn't have been published in the form that it was um, if it was published during his lifetime. That's the key thing. It's the fact that Tolkien himself was a perfectionist and he didn't abandon the Silmarillion. He, he took it up again in the 60s and early 70s and really put a lot of work into it, which is we later learn about in other posthumously released volumes, which Christopher edited and, and commented on, uh, which is the History of Middle-earth series. But the, the Silmarillion that we got in 1977 was, parts of it were written by a Canadian author called Guy Gavriel Kay, who went on to have a successful career of his own. He's a claimed fantasy author. Um, somebody I've been wanting to interview at some point, actually. Um, and so he, he contributed sections of some of the late stuff in the, in the Silmarillion, in the Quentin Silmarillion, the, uh, the part where Beren comes back and... Um, it goes and has the has the fight with the dwarves, and so he he punishes the dwarves who had uh, murdered his father-in-law. That part was largely written by Guy, Guy Gavriel Kay. Well, I've learned something today. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, a lot of people don't know that. It's um, yeah, Christopher doesn't really kind of talk about it much anywhere in any of the the published works, but it's it's a fa- it's absolutely a fact that some of the actual text was written by him, and some of it was written by this other Canadian author. Um, the large, overwhelming, large um, majority of the text is written by Tolkien himself, but um, but it is based upon many different versions. So he he takes parts from the 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 overall structure of it is based upon pre Lord of the Rings stuff, and and so that's the the stuff that I mentioned already that was part of a frame story that was presented by Elfwinia. It's a Anglo-Saxon character that he invented and 
and then some other parts that had to be introduced in order to make it consistent with the Lord of the Rings, which is basically mostly the Galadriel stuff, um, was was post Lord of the Rings. Um, Galadriel is really interesting when you start talking about the Silmarillion. I've talked about her at length in, in my Silmarillion series because there are lots of versions of her storyline that were written that are all mutually exclusive, and just so you have to kind of pick and choose with her. Right. Um, and that's what Christopher did. And and he chose as little as possible, which is why her storyline just kind of tails off in the Quintus Silmarillion. And then we pick her, pick her story up again in the uh, the final book, which is of the Rings of Power and the Third Age, basically. It, one interesting topic that I'm sure we'll get to is that we, the showrunners, may not have picked the same versions that Christopher Tolkien picked from the canon for certain events to unfold. And I think mm. that's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, one interesting thing about her is um, her, I mentioned she has conflicting storylines and different versions that Tolkien wrote. Um, he changed his mind about her up until pretty much the last month of his life, actually. Um, and he, there are several versions that are all slightly different, but all have her fighting at the Kinslaying at Alqualonde. Um, and so the version that Christopher actually used doesn't mention that. And yet it's pretty much the only version that doesn't. Uh, <laughs> So if you actually look at all of these different versions that Tolkien was playing with, he, this was a very persistent idea in his mind for, for her to be involved in that conflict. And yet Christopher didn't include it because it just, if he'd have used that, it would have created more problems for him further on in the narrative in order to introduce her storyline. And there would have been even more stuff that he would have had to invent in order to make that work. Yeah, really interesting character to think about when you talk about this stuff. Hello everyone, my name is Jordan Rennells, and with my friend Katie, we are both working to create and share art for all of our favorite fandoms at 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. We have bookmarks, so many stickers, earrings, prints of all sizes, super small, and all the way up to 24 by 30 inches to really show off all of your favorite characters. We have coloring books, keychains, and always more on the way. So if you want a Hobbit Hole bookmark, or a set of Legend of Zelda Korok earrings, stickers for all of your favorite Marvel characters, or a big wall art poster of the Night's Watch Vows words so that you can recite them every time you need to pump yourself up, head over to 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. You can even use the code WATCHPARTY10 to get a 10% discount. That's 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Absolutely. And, and you're getting us to something that I think is really, really important. The significance of Christopher Tolkien's role as an editor. You know, we've talked about there being multiple drafts. Now, of course, all authors have multiple drafts. Why is that an issue in terms of canon? Of course, the issue is because J.R.L. Tolkien never finalized his draft and published it and gave us something where he said, this is what the story is, my stamp of approval, that we can all then just take and say, okay, then this is it. Um, it it creates ambiguity in terms of what do we consider to be the true story because we know that he there are other drafts some drafts that were written after the drafts that Christopher Tolkien chose to include in the Silmarillion right and so Christopher Tolkien's role as editor is significant because and God bless him you know what a difficult job to make sense of all these different drafts written at different times and 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 trying to decipher them and decide 
um, which should be included and which shouldn't. I'm certainly never going to criticize the job he did. It was frankly um, mm. just short of miraculous. It was really amazing. Um, yeah, Chris- Christopher Tolkien is the father of Tolkien scholarship. There, yeah. there is no Tolkien scholarship without him. He is is the greatest scholar of his father's work that was or is or ever will be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't can't be understated. Um, but what what he did was he he published the Silmarillion, which was his his edited version of the storyline. Um, took out as much as possible to make it a simple narrative, and, and took out the frame narrative. Um, made it consistent with the Lord of the Rings as much as possible. Um, and then and then what he did is he spent twenty years explaining all of that. <laughs> so yeah. that's why we have the twelve volume. Um, History of Middle-earth series. He started off with Unfinished Tales, yep. which was published in 1980, which was kind of like a trial run at doing what he did later on with the History of Middle-earth series. Right. So Un- Unfinished Tales is, is um, separated into three parts, which is the three ages. Um, so we get the, the version of the Turin Turambar story, which was later edited again and published as a single volume. And then we get the... the unfinished fall of gondolin story which um sadly trails off just as tuor gets to gondolin yeah um and then we get the numenor stuff most primarily in the middle part and then we get sort of scattered essays from the third age hobbit lord of the rings era stuff um which most of which is like kind of considered primary law now um from from people who, who study the law and and the quote unquote canon of tolkien's legendarium yeah, um, Unfinished then, Tales, then that, he... that volume is just such a tease because there are just these great, <laughs> great stories that then don't, you don't get to see the finish, you know, you don't get to see how it ends, which is all I want in the world is to read the full Fall of Gondolin or to read the full Mariner's Wife. Yeah. It's, you know. Some beautiful relationships, too, that you're like, oh, I wouldn't like, he's exploring some themes here that we don't even necessarily get in other works. Like, yeah. Serious, mm-hmm. intense relationships between father, son, and all these different dynamics that aren't as prominent in other works so yeah it's tasty stuff um for those who want more tolkien yeah it's like a meta tragedy in a way because like you read the stories and then you you you, you weep because they're not finished <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah it's really interesting volume some good stuff in there um and it explains things like the palantiri and the and the wizards and some of the lore and background behind those kind of themes and things in the in the lord of the rings well and i think that what should be becoming a little more clear to our listeners now, especially if they're discovering Tolkien for the first time and wondering why isn't everything in the Silmarillion exactly canon that I can hang my hat on? Um, for this very reason, it is it is more complex because it was it, it is the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, but the specific they're all written by J.R.R. Tolkien, but they were chosen by Christopher Tolkien, and there are other versions that are on the cutting room floor that an argument could be made that that may have been closer to J.R.R. Tolkien's intent of what he wanted to include later in life when he passed. So if you're thinking about, well, what's the real story, to the extent that's even a question that we should ask, but it is because people do ask it, you know, an argument could be made, well, whatever his thoughts were the day before he died, right? His most latest, his latest, most recent thoughts before he died, that's, that's what we should try and adhere to because it was a work in progress and that's represents his thinking at the point of most progress, right? So an argument could be made for that. Other arguments be made, well, there are pieces of it that were more finished and that he set aside. Okay, those were done. And that, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. So I kind of want you to help us through that a little bit. 
Well, a good example of kind of um, what you were talking about there with what's most finished. Um, we, we mentioned the Fall of Gondolin storyline, which tails off when Tuor gets to Gondolin, which is, you know, the first act of the story. Um, the, the most completed version of that was the very first prose Middle-earth that Tolkien ever wrote, which was the Fall of Gondolin storyline that we get in the Book of Lost Tales, which is... In, completely incongruent with stuff that came later on um it, if you put it in its original context you know the book of lost tales there's no fin golfing there's uh like characters that aren't developed properly feanor is not the feanor that we know in the published work um and there's just so many differences the fall of gondolin storyline in the book of lost tales has mechanized dragons that are kind of made of metal and things like this but that story is a lot of people, a lot of people I have great respect for consider that the most uh, canon version of that story just because it's finished and it's a complete narrative and it's a great story as well. You know, it's um, it's really kind of, it's one of those stories where you get large scale battles like the Battle of Pelennor Fields or something, but in a Silmarillion setting, it's just, um, it's a great, great work. And, you know, it's the origins of Glorfindel's storyline. Um so that's a good example of something where it's subjective what you consider the, the primary version to be, because there are certainly people that consider that version to be the primary version. Um, but it's, it's just, it is subjective. And, and it comes back to the fact that Tolkien was trying to create a mythology. And so what we get is a mythology that has scattered versions that come from different places, from different times during his life. And and we can place them within an overall framework of legend rather than something like Star Wars where we have everything has to be historically consistent and has to match up with what the the you know the corporate entity wants it wants the the viewers to believe is the primary storyline with Tolkien what we have is I've talked about it as a metaphor of it being like a soup you know legend being like a soup um it's a mythology that's so freeing in a way to be able to watch something and have more of an open mind about what different elements could come in. And I'm personally just so excited for the director's commentary where they're going to talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, but it gives you it gives you freedom as a fan um, to not be so you know bullheaded about what should and shouldn't be in there to me it's it's very refreshing and freeing as a fan whereas i'm not like that with other fandoms but absolutely i have more of an open mind um, with lord of the rings which is maybe contrary to other folks but <laughs> it's an interesting question just how um rigid we should be as fans to our own visions of middle earth versus you know other people's because what you consider to be the primary storyline is is subjective to such an extent you have to decide for yourself and respect what others believe in and the ideas that that others kind of buy into as what is the primary story yeah and i'm gonna you know pull in some of my uh, legal training and you know talk about when you're interpreting texts there's a legal maxim so if the if the plain text of a statute you know a congressional statute isn't clear then maybe you have a reason to look at the congressional record to try and figure out what Congress was trying to say. And so when you're doing that, if there are multiple drafts, you might say, well, in this draft, in this first draft, they had X, Y, and Z in it. You know, you know, they said, you definitely don't, you can never, ever cross the street. And then the next draft, they said, 
well, you can sometimes, you know, it's softer language, but you can sometimes cross the street. And uh, then the Finnish language is a little ambiguous. People are wondering, well, can we cross the street or can't we? And then you would look at the, those drafts and say, well, they were thinking about, uh, they toyed around with making it a never, ever cross the street. And then you can see in the drafting process, they open it up. So yeah, you can cross the street sometimes. If you applied that approach to Tolkien, then then that would go back to the sort of interpretive mode that I talked about. Well, you would have to look at his latest draft because it means that he discarded the prior drafts, right? He he Even if it was a finished draft, a prior one was more finished. If he moved on from it and wanted to rework it, that means he didn't like it. And that becomes really kind of problematic because we know that later in his life, he set about to completely work rework the mythology. Uh, you know, some of the cosmogony, he's like, well, I want to make it more consistent with the stars and the, the history of our real world. And so I'm going to do away with some of this uh, the, the ver- and the version that I love. And I think a lot of people kind of agree, like, we like what we got. And so Tolkien, to the extent you were experimenting with changing it, we're glad you didn't. You're, you're, allu- you're alluding to the, the round, um, the round earth Silmarillion there, I think, um, where Tolkien changed his mind about the, the, the world being flat. Right. So he he actually thought to himself, um, he, he developed an, an interest in astronomy as he got older, and so he he was very much invested in the world being as close as possible to our real world. And so he he on a couple of occasions he toyed with the idea of making uh, Arda flat uh, round from the beginning, which if you know the Silmarillion, you know changes the entire mm-hmm. origins of the mythology to to a very large extent because we we. With the the sun and moon are are vessels which go around the world after immediately after the death of the trees in the early parts of the Silmarillion, and so you have to change that story in order to make that work. Um, mm-hmm. And it's I think it's less powerful on a yeah. on a mytholo- mythological level. Right. Um, what we, what we get in the published version is the version where the fall of Numenor results in the world being made flat, uh, being made round. Excuse me. Um, which is there is a an obscure reference to that in the Lord of the Rings as well. So if you want to consider the Lord of the Rings like the primary canon, Tom Bombadil mentions the folding of the seas at one point. Yeah. And so I I would argue that Tolkien had already written himself into a corner in terms of trying to change the the cosmogony to the point where the world was always round. And you see that in his later drafts and in his letters that he when he is reworking the Silmarillion, because as you mentioned, he continued to work on this world until basically the day of his death. He never stopped working on it, which is just so you know beautiful in and of itself. But then he is, because he has this published text, Lord of the Rings, that he basically can't change, although you know there are minor tweaks in later versions to correct some stuff. But for the most part, it's he's like, all right, the Lord of the Rings is the Lord of the Rings. I can't depart from it, even though he may have wanted to. But so then he's trying to make changes, but force them to fit into what's in the Lord of the Rings. And so you can see him going through that authorial process. He's almost like his process becomes almost like fan fiction because there's this other work that granted he created it, but now he's now he has to write within that world. Right. So he's not completely free to write whatever he wanted. He's kind of now working within the world that he created, you know, so you can see his um, authorial process change a little bit because he is trying to fit stuff into a corner that he's already painted himself into. Yeah, the other thing as well, he 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 started to create a third edition to the Hobbit, which was a brand new version of the Hobbit. It wasn't minor tweaks and changes like we got in the second edition. Right. It was a whole new version, which was 
written in in the narrative style of the lord of the rings and so it was very much more laboriously written it was more archaic and formal and yeah. less childlike and whimsical uh never really you know got off the ground i think he got to about chapter three before he abandoned it and i think someone talked him out of it right attempt to revise i think so yeah i think i don't remember the story but i think i think the publishers basically talked him out of it yeah um, well, and if you look at that from, you know, through the lens of adaptation, he basically, he toyed with doing and then abandoned the very thing that Jackson did with his cinematic adaptation was he tried mm-hmm. to take The Hobbit and it's like, well, let's fit it into The Lord of the Rings. Let's take all, let's take stuff out of the appendices. Let's tell those stories as well and make it one sort of like epic And it tale. didn't work. And it didn't, it didn't really work. <laughs> um, you know, could it have worked? I don't know, but. The difference is that Tolkien had the wisdom to abandon it, and well, his publishers did. <laughs> you could look at it that way, but right, but yeah, um, but it is ironic. Yeah, it's interesting to point out. So you know, I talked about how one way to look at interpreting multiple drafts is to look at the prior drafts as discarded drafts, and thereby evidence that those drafts should not be used because he moved on from them. But that's not the only way to look at it, and that's probably not consistent with the way a creative mind works. I think you know, creative people. My, my sister is an author and she mentioned this to me. It's like, well, sometimes you, you draft to play around with ideas. So you, you write a story, you know, an essay or a story through to the end. And then that doesn't mean just because you completed it, that doesn't mean that that's the one you want. It just means that you were playing with that idea. And maybe you move on and you do another draft and another draft. And, or maybe you go back to an idea that you're playing with 10 years ago or, you know, whatever your process may be. Um, so I think, there's no simple answer. And if, if you are hell bent on trying to determine what is the correct answer to a question of lore, what is the true Middle Earth? I think the answer is there is no answer and there can be no answer, which I think is very frustrating to a lot of people because for some reason it's like in our nature as readers to try and nail that down. We want to pin this legendarium and put it into two dimensions and make it very, very clear so that we can write a Wikipedia page and say, this is what the story is. Um, but I don't think we can do that. And I think once we admit that to ourselves, and Jen, you use the phrase freeing, it's very, very freeing. And actually, I think it adds a whole other layer of enjoyment. I think you know, we just got to stop worrying and love the bomb that is Tolkien's legendarium. You know, um, we, can, we can look at these different versions and that starts getting into sort of a, a more scholarly approach. It's, it takes more work, but I think it is also more rewarding. Um, because you get to experience it on a whole other plane. The other side of the coin, I suppose, is the fact that Tolkien was very precise about dates and those sorts of things. And he spent a a great deal of time when he was in the drafting process of The Lord of the Rings in particular, figuring out, you know, down to like what the phases of the moon were and all this sort of thing, Um, which is, you know, there's that great moment when the the fellowship leave Lothlorien and, and Sam notices that there's a new moon. And so he realizes that they were there for that much longer than he'd thought because there's this weird uh, sort of timey-wimey effect that it happens in Lothlorien. Um, and, and that's because Tolkien spent, you know, was laboriously trying to figure out the phases of the moon and you know he, that's why we have the calendars and the appendices and and why we have the tale of years which during the storyline of the lord of the rings actually gives us precise dates for every event um and so he was very very precise when it came to the published works but it just becomes that much more nebulous when you start looking at the silmarillion and the first age and that sort of thing um, and you make a great point there and i i think that and Jen, you can speak to this, uh, you know, 
creative, the creative process. And Jen and I both have sort of a musical background. You know, the intro music for our podcast is is Jen's band. So I know that sort of the from the creative music making process, there's a mile, miles and miles difference between okay, I've written a song, I've written all the lyrics, and I I think I know how it goes. It's done in my head. It's done. Then you get into the studio to record it. And all of us, there's, there's so much between I finished it in my head to I've, I've finished the recording and now it's finished. And the, the song can be completely changed through that final process. You know, you end up collaborating with producers or your, the other musicians in your band or what have you. Um, and you start really, it forces you to think about the work that you've already created in a different way. You start thinking about details and nuances and all of a sudden things change and become better, hopefully. And I bring that up to say, because the Lord of the Rings was a finished work, because he went through that final leg of the journey to get it published and get it ready for publication and, and responded to comments from his editors and things like that, it is definitely a more finished work than, say, the, the Silmarillion, which maybe in his head, we, these are finished stories, but he didn't go through that last final leg of the process to get it ready for publication. And who knows what kind of changes he would have realized he needed to make to create an internal cohesion and to make everything fit together in just the way he wanted. Um, so that's an, an interesting question to ask, you know, what would the Cimarillion have been if Jared Tolkien had actually sat down to get it ready for publication? One of the big reasons why the Silmarillion was never published during Tolkien's lifetime was, um, I mean, most of his concerns were kind of of a, of a theological or metaphysical nature. And one of the big ones was the orcs and the, their origins, because he had this firm kind of precept that he, he would stick to um, on, on theological grounds that evil cannot create anything new. And this, this is this quote that we've had Russian bots yes. spamming the uh, the trailer with is where they get this from. They get a paraphrased version of it from um, TVTropes.com or somewhere, I think. Um, but it, but that, I mean, that absolutely was one of Tolkien's ideas, was that evil couldn't create anything new. And so orcs were supposed to be um, kind of made in mockery of the elves. But Tolkien... Um, the, the, the version that everybody knows from the films and certainly was in the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion from 1977, was that the orcs were uh, corrupted by Melkor in the beginning. He, he kidnapped a portion of them during the, the very early years after the elves awoke and tortured them and corrupted them and they were made into orcs. Um, the problem with that on a, on a metaphysical level is do they have a soul? <laughs> and so if they're elves, they would have to, logically. Um, and, so, and so you have a problem when you get to the Lord of the Rings when Aragorn and co. are killing orcs willy-nilly like they're cannon fodder. Um, and, and the way that the orcs are presented in the, in the published works is very much like a sentient creature. You know, they have conversations with each other. They have they have kind of motives and, and aspirations. You know, there's the, the, the conversation between uh, Gorbag and Shagrat where they're, they're talking about um, how they wish they could go back to the old days before the, the Dark Lord was there and they, they want to set up on their own somewhere. That's not, a, you know, an automaton. That's, that's a creature with a will and a soul of its own. Um, and so in his mind, Tolkien had this problem which was unsolvable and... and you talk about um, him exploring different ideas with different drafts. This is exactly what he did with the orcs. He, he took himself through a process where he wrote several different origin stories for the orcs. 
and none of them worked. <laughs> and that's one of the big reasons why the Silmarillion was never published, was, was things like that. It, it's such a it's such a problem. And we talked at length about this actually two episodes ago, and we had the Reading Tolkien pod guys on to talk about the orcs and sort of the problem of the orcs, both metaphysically, which is what you're talking about, but also uh, what's their function narratively. Uh, because on the one hand, you can go down the bunny trail of, of what's their metaphysical purpose and, and, well, if they do have a soul, then what does that mean for the narrative we're going to write in the Second Age? And are the showrunners in the Rings of Power going to be playing with that? And are we going to have a redemptive a, a redemptive story arc for one of the orcs, you know, and would that be offensive to viewers? Um, and so there's the metaphysical question, but also just the narrative question. How are they used in the story? Um, and so I, I encourage people to go back and listen to that conversation two, two episodes ago. But that is probably the most significant example of, of a really, really important concept that Tolkien cared a lot about that went to fundamental elements of his mythology that he couldn't quite nail down and that he created many different versions of. And so people are going to have a lot of, this is something that probably people have opinions on and express opinions on when the Rings of Power are, uh, show is, is going on, depending on what they do with the orcs. But there will probably be people questioning, like, what was the origin of the orcs? Because we'll have orcish characters and orcish storylines from what we've heard. And probably the villains in general. I think not just the orcs. I think people will have a lot of questions about the villains in particular. We've already seen some villain-like characters from the long trailer that we have so many questions about mm. that maybe are not answerable remains to be seen. So the, the rumored elvish character that we see kind of leading the orcs and uh, we haven't really seen him other than in a character poster. But um, yeah. but we've known we've known about this character for some time kind of it's been rumored at least um that character is going to be really interesting to explore and very gonna interesting have a lot of lot of opinions about yes. him i'm sure um he's he's not a character from anywhere in the books and so he is a completely new invention or if um, he is a character probably. from the books he's a character that's been changed significantly for the purposes of this show yeah yeah absolutely can you give us another example of something from the legendarium that depending on which source you look at which draft you look at you would have a completely different story Okay, so um, so I mentioned the mythology for England angle of the legendarium and how that became less of a prominent theme in the mythology as Tolkien redrafted. Um, there's, the Book of Lost Tales version explicitly says that the island of Toleresia was England. You know that <laughs> that in that version that. The, that island beca- becomes England later on, and the, the little piece that breaks off is Ireland, um, and so Tolkien explicitly says that. Um, and then in later versions, uh, sort of middle versions in the 20s and 30s, um, the part of Beleriand breaks off after the um, War of Wrath, and so that becomes England in that version. Um, and then eventually Tolkien just kind of lets that go and that's why in that in that letter at the beginning of the lord of the rings tolkien talks about don't laugh at me but i once had this um idea that i in my head to create a mythology for england and and how he sort of apologetically terms that um because it, he he kind of did lose that idea over time um but it's i mean it's he kind of like nods to it by the including the shire because the Shire is like 19th century England and it's very right, um, right. anachronous, I suppose, to have the Shire in the place that he has it. But it's, yeah, depending on which version you read, it's either explicitly a mythology for England or it's explicitly not. <laughs> um, so I suppose that's a significant thing to, to point out to people. 
I, I think that's a very significant thing because that is also something that certain folks online point to mm. when they're complaining about certain choices with the show. And I'm referring to, you know, the diversity of the mm. casting, maybe the prevalence of more, well, I was going to say the prevalence of more women. That's kind of a separate issue. But, you know, people, when people complain about the diversity of casting, they say, this is a mythology for England. When they say that, they mean white England, which is not entirely accurate, you know, either. No. You know, they're using and really misusing that quote. But it's hard, it's hard to get a clear understanding of that. So newcomers to Tolkien are going to Google this, uh, Google their questions, and they're going to see that probably 90% of the time, that it's supposed to be mythology for England, and that what that means is that there can't be any people of color in the story. Well, so to take us out, you know, we've been sort of uh, escalating in terms of complexity. You know, we started with, you know, we got The Hobbit, which is in the Third Age, set before Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is the end of the Third Age, going to the, the Fourth Age. It's got the Appendices, which talks about the Second Age, which is the basis for Rings of Power. Um, after his death, we got the Silmarillion, which is the, you know, Second Age a little bit, mostly the First Age and Years of the Trees, um, which is basically everything before Lord of the Rings. And the Unfinished Tales, which is a part of that as well, kind of jumps around. And then the History of Middle-Earth Volumes, which, as you said, is Christopher Tolkien's 20-year process of explaining how he edited the Silmarillion, which, in addition to you know explaining his editorial choices, it contains the drafts, the various drafts, and it contains other versions, and um, not just drafts of things that were included, but things that were excised altogether. And there's just so much good stuff in there. Um, it, it's, it reads like a reference textbook, so don't try and read it front to back. Um, you can jump around. There's, it's like reading a little essays. So I made that mistake late at night one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely fell asleep. Yeah, there's de- there's definitely there's definitely material in the uh, history of Middle Earth series which is perfect for falling to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're the kind of like me, like sometimes I'll like to read a Marvel wiki, you know, a little essay on a Marvel character. You can kind of approach the history of Middle Earth like that. They're like little essays that are short and digestible. Um, especially in the later volumes, like Morgoth's Ring has got so much good stuff in there and you can just read through it and you don't have to read it all in order for it to make sense. And probably it would make more sense if you don't approach it that way. Just read the pieces that you want to read. But that's maybe something for uh, newcomers to Tolkien. You definitely got to work your way up to the history of Middle-earth volumes. Read, read the Lord of the Rings first at the very least. Um, yeah, I, there's um, so several of the middle volumes diff, uh, deal explicitly with the drafting process of the Lord of the Rings. So those should be probably read in order. Yep. Um, probably makes sense to read volume one of the um, Book of Lost Tales before you read volume two. Um, right. But aside aside from that, you can jump around. Um, the last three are like late writings and late revisions to the Silmarillion, but those can be read in any order. You mentioned Mordor's Ring. That, that has some massive standouts in it. Yeah. Which I would almost, I would almost persuade people to start with that just to get a, a glimpse of what some of this material is really like because it's just great. <laughs> right. Well, and to the extent that anyone is trying to get tips on what to ring to read to be prepared for the Rings of Power, obviously, in addition to Lord of the Rings and the Appendices and the Silmarillion, if you want to get jump into the Unfinished Tales, there's some essays in there about the Astari that may be of interest. Galadriel and Celeborn, um, you'll get a couple versions of her history. I think that would be of interest. Aldarian and Arendis. The Alcalabeth. The oh, well, Definitely. The if you don't want to read yeah. the whole Silmarillion, I'm just saying, if you don't want to read the whole Silmarillion, yes, I've known yeah. people who have started it and dropped it many times. Just read the Alcalabeth. Right. Which is very, it's a short read. I mean, it's really, really easy to read. 
Easy. Yeah, there's some background material on Sauron's storyline in the Second Age in of the Rings of Power and the Third yes. Age as well, which I think would be of great interest to people who are reading or who are watching the uh, Rings of Power show. Some of that is also kind of referenced in the in the appendices as well. But so Dan, to take us out, you know, let's get to the most abstract. Tell us why the whole concept of canon. In general, as a general matter, when you're doing literary analysis, is a problematic one. Well, it's a problematic thing when you're talking about literature in general, just because um, it's, it doesn't really apply as a concept in the same way as it does to something that's on screen. I suppose when you're looking at the kind of the meta frame of, of a text, um, you have to think about the distance between the the point of view of the narrator and the point of view of the characters um, and the the perspective that you're getting there. Um, thinking about something like um, Dracula, for instance, if you've ever read Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. that is, is um, told in letters and journals and newspaper clippings, but we never get um, third person omniscience in Dracula. And so you have to reconstruct the tale based on various sources which according to the frame of the story have been kind of organized um but nonetheless there is a distance there same thing with tolkien um and it's part of the design of the legendarium that that is so because because of the hobbit and that being like a kind of um interruption to the drafting process of the the mythology and the the silmarillion this this became a prominent thing and the, with Tolkien the the frame story changed over time from it being Ariel in the Book of Lost Tales to Alfwynia in this kind of early Silmarillion, Quintus Silmarillion stuff to being Bilbo in post Lord of the Rings and and then the publication of the work being kind of taken from various sources um and we're very lucky as Tolkien fans to, that that process is so transparent because we have the History of Middle-earth series and, and Christopher really set it all out and explained it all. Um, but it, when you get into literature, you have to really think about... You have to think of it more in terms of what does the author intend than what is, you know, canon. <laughs> because it's, it's just it's less of a meaningful concept in, in a body of literature. You know, we could talk about H.P. Lovecraft and how the the Lovecraftian universe is kind of it has a canon, but then it was kind of open source for other authors to come in and add to that. And so you can talk about that and and what is canon in that universe. Um, really interesting topic. It's just so much more complex in literature than it is in something like the MCU, which is <laughs> how these like these clickbait YouTubers kind of go for that framework because that people understand that but mm-hmm. they don't present anything more than the first page of google results when they actually try to explain that to their audiences and it's great that we have podcasts like this one where we can when we can talk about that and, and lay it all out for people who might not have been exposed to that element yeah thank you i would add one one layer to what you just described which is the way in which mythology is different from other forms of literary work you know a mythology is something that emerges over time over multiple generations you know real world mythologies you know they're passed down orally for years and years and then they're eventually set in writing 
but that's generations and generations after the mythology began to be created, right? And we see versions of real-world mythologies appear in different cultures in different forms, and we can you know, we can tie them together. And mm. that's a testament to the way that the stories are transmitted orally through generations, and then they become divergent just the same way that cultures become divergent, you know? Yeah, no, Norse mythology. We, we have no source texts for Norse mythology that were extant at the time that the mythology was you know religion and believed in yeah we everything we know about norse mythology comes from christian sources yeah from, right from the medi from the medieval era not not the bronze age era that it's actually describing um right. so we, we everything we know about that is filtered through a christian lens and that's what tolkien was setting out to write not a novel not something where there's necessarily a, a clear clear story that we unambiguously can say that this is the story. He was writing it through a frame narrative and trying to incorporate the way the story might have changed over generations, you know, the generations that occurred within his story. But to add sort of a meta, meta layer to that, I think that because now we have drafts of his story and I think he was probably setting out to create a final version. That's what he was eventually working towards. And he was trying to embed the the frame narrative and all the, the elements I just described into that final publication whenever he finished it but because we never got there i kind of like to look at these various drafts and these various versions that he was working on as sort of the different versions of the mythology that would we would see in the real world the different oral traditions um how you know you might hear a version of the story from one friend and then a uh, and then another version of the story from another friend both of whom were at the event and then from a third friend who who weren't there, who wasn't there, but heard from somebody else, right? You know, the, the way that stories change in the telling. We see this all the time in music, for example, folk music. Maybe you were about to get to this, Michael, but Michael and I both come from the folk music tradition where there are many different versions of the same song yeah. that were just passed down and recycled. And depending on who you talk to and regionally, they're all going to be very different. Um, and it's and it's certainly that way. Um for music and many art forms. And this is an art form we're talking mm -hmm. about. And I think it helps to reframe it that way. This is an art form as much as it is um, an actual literary endeavor. For Tolkien, I think yeah. it, was, it was certainly art. And Jen and I both grew up in Arizona, which is kind of, you know, the wild, wild west. We do have cities out here now, but there was still kind of, especially growing up, I was very aware of the old west tradition. There was, there were cowboy poetry gatherings, you know, and my dad is a musician and he would, he played uh, uh, old Western music. And so we would go to these cowboy poetry gatherings um, and I would go with him. I was a little kid and he would play music and I would sit and I would listen to like legitimate cowboys. You know, they're the older generation, the newer generation of cowboys. They're, you know, more corporate and they're riding tractors, not horses. But, um, you know, there's an older generation of cowboys there that are reciting this old cowboy poetry and they would talk about different versions of the cowboy poetry and you'd hear somebody else at the same conference tell a different version of the same story, you know? And so I was kind of exposed to a version of this oral tradition and the, and the way that stories can change. And, you know, it's the cowboy version, but it sort of made me very willing to embrace this idea of, we don't have one story, but many. And even though it came from the same author, he wrote many versions of the same story and let's em embrace that and kind of enjoy them all and trying to imagine them as just pieces of this broader mythology he was trying to create. Yeah, I really have nothing to add to that, um, but that's a really good way of explaining it. Well, I guess let's uh, let's end it there. Dan, we're really thankful that you were able to come on and uh, bring your expertise and walk through this for us. I've tried to read the history of Middle Earth 
and I've read parts of it, but uh, you know it much better than me. So I was really uh, thankful for your expertise. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a, I'm a YouTuber. I have a, a Tolkien law channel on YouTube, which is Voice of Geekdom. Uh, and uh, you can find me there primarily. Uh, I'm also largely on Twitter and relatively responsive on Twitter, um, which is at Voice of Geek. Um, and I'm also at Voice of Geekdom on Instagram and I have a Facebook page, Voice of Geekdom as well. So I'm on all of those platforms, but primarily Twitter is the best way to get hold of me and um, definitely, ch- definitely check out the YouTube channel. We recommend that everybody go check out Dan's work as well. Great similarly in explainer videos. You've got a long running series and that will continue to be running a long time from now because you really go in depth and it's <laughs> you do a great job. So please go check out his stuff, Voice of Geekdom. And please come back uh, next week. Not even next week. We're doing multiple episodes a week now in the run up to the Rings of Power. We're very, very psyched. Also, don't forget to go check out our sister podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time. They are still running every single week, going strong. Rourke and Sima are the hosts. They are experts, and they have a whole panel of noobs who have never read the books but are enjoying the universe through the shows. They have really excellent conversations. And the newest addition to the Watch Party Network is a watch party of House and Fire, which just released the other day. Three episodes dropped right at once. It's probably, by the time this episode airs, there will be another one out there. That is a really fun crew. They're doing stuff completely different than we do here at the Wheel of Time podcast. They're very creative. They've got, you know, trivia and ways for you to interact with them. So please go check them out if you plan on watching HBO's House of the Dragon uh, show coming up uh, in the middle of August. So that'll do it for us here at Watch Party. Jen, you want to take us out? Sure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. For the Grey Havens, Dan, I wanted to ask you, I grew up on Next Generation. I know you're a big Trekkie. <laughs> G- give us a quick breakdown of what's going on in the Star Trek world. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm always, always down to talk some Trek. Um, I, I also grew up with the Next Generation. Um, we've just had a, a short teaser trailer for the um, Picard Season 3 with the Next Generation cast coming back. Um, so that's coming up at some point next year, I think. Um, so that'll be, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, we get a we get a wharf with like, you know, kind of grey white hair, um, right? And so we'll we'll see him again, which I'm excited about. It's going to be fun just to see a Klingon that looks like a Klingon because <laughs> recent shows have redesigned the Klingons, and and then now they've gone back to the '90s design, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, uh, we've just wrapped um, Strange New Worlds, which um, I did. I did a live stream on a <clears throat> on a YouTube channel a, a while back. Uh, some some friends of mine from a channel called Here Be Dragons invited me on to talk about that. So, oh nice. Um, I'm always, I'm always there to uh, talk about Star Trek if somebody asks me. Um, I <laughs> I've always planned to do some Star Trek at some point on my channel in the future if I have ever have time to stop talking Tolkien so much. Um, yeah. So, Once yeah, you've gone are, through the whole the legendarium and you're about 65 years old, that's when yeah. you'll be able to get to the Trek. <laughs> um, Star Trek is another thing which, um, you know, is just massive part of my life. Um, talk, talking about canon, Star Trek has a very rigid canon that it is, you know, more accessible to that type of thinking. 
um, because it's all on screen and it's and it has a continuity across the different shows and so on. Um, if if anybody's new to Star Trek and and hasn't hasn't experienced Star Trek, I'd recommend Strange New Worlds actually because it's been the best Star Trek show that I've seen in years. Probably the best since DS Nine. The first season was fantastic. Wow. Um, it's uh, it's kind of like a immediate prequel to the original series from the sixties. So it's mm. it's on the Star Starship Enterprise, but um, it's the crew that were there for the captain who was in charge of the Enterprise before James Kirk. Hmm. Um, so that's um, is the design reminiscent of the original Star Trek in terms of like the the lights and the buttons and all that? Uh, it's reminiscent but different. It's 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 a modernized version of the same sets. So it's um, it's you know it's not it don't, they don't have like um, magnetic tapes that they plug into the bridge <laughs> like they had in the sixties. But right. um, but they do have a bridge which looks similar thematically. It has the red rails and kind of like the same similar layout, although it's larger. So it's it's not quite the same, but it's got nods to the sixties designs there. Um, so they didn't they didn't feel the need to do what like Star Wars did with episode seven, which is like go back to the aesthetic of the original trilogy. And Star Wars is completely different. But I imagine that might have been a little mm-hmm. difficult with Star Trek. You know, the yeah. the budgets being the, so low in the early days of the show. Yeah, the, the 60s show was low budget even for its time. And it was the 60s. So um, they couldn't really go back to that exact same design. They did do that in the 60s. You know, they they revisited some of the um in the 90s i mean in 90s trek they did revisit the 60s trek era and they they reused that 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 was a kind of like a visual retcon it gets called um and so they've they've retconned various elements in in star trek um over the years the the klingons of course have gone through a retcon in the 90s because the in in the uh in the 60s they were kind of like guys in blackface with like fu manchu beards and and then and then they became more alien looking with the the movies and the the 80s movies changed them and and they look different on tng and ds9 right (laughs) um thank goodness they they've lost that design and left it in the 60s yeah (laughs) yeah for for real it sounds like we need to start watch party uh star trek maybe with you dan (laughs) well michael has asked me before actually you did the um, (laughs) because you know how big of a fan i am i just i don't have time but yeah (laughs) i don't blame um, you for that if you ever start one i would happily come on as a guest um perhaps as a recurring co-host but um i don't know that i have the time to do it every week uh one of the panelists on the wheel of time pod he's also a crazy big trekkie so i just i, I have in the back of my ma- my mind plans to unite you two and, and see what kind of uh sparks fly uh, but i'll tell you i do plan on i haven't watched star trek in a long time and i watched um obviously next generation is what i grew up on and um the the series that came after that i i can't remember the name now but that was really good uh well there was voyager which was kind of after next generation ended and there was ds9 which was kind of um at the same time it started a few years later ds9 ended a few years later yeah ds9 is my favorite ds9 is amazing yeah that that one was really good and that was like at first, I couldn't get into it because it's not next next generation. It didn't have Jean Luc Picard. You know, I, I, my sense of what Star Trek is was so heavily informed by Next Generation that I couldn't go back and, and watch the other series that came out after without that all that baggage. But I have subsequently come to 
appreciate that that is the best one that's ever come out that I'm, I'm aware of. It's the, be- it's the best written by quite a distance, in my opinion. Yeah, but I am excited to, I will probably at some point watch Picard. I've heard it's not the best, but just for nostalgia, you know, just to see Patrick Stewart doing his thing, you know, I, I will enjoy it. Even if it's not the greatest show in the world, I will enjoy it just for that reason. Patrick Stewart has definitely aged a lot, <laughs> and you know, um, his role in Logan as Professor X in Logan is kind of that was him playing himself to an extent, you know, almost like not <laughs> oh, not not with the men- not with the mental <laughs> illness, but but that role was kind of like tailored for him to be because he he did have a heart attack I think a few years ago, oh. um, and so it, he's lost his commanding vo- vocal presence right. um, as an actor to an extent. Which is sad. Yeah. Um, his acting performance in Picard is fine, um, but it's not the best show. Uh, yeah. It's very disappointing. Nostalgia just about rescues some episodes, uh-huh. but um, but the formula that they've gone for doesn't really work for me. See, which gives me a thousand reasons not to watch it, but I'm going to watch it anyway. Because sometimes <laughs> you just need a blast from the past. Watch Strange New Worlds if you get the child. Strange New Worlds is incredible. So that's a good recommendation. I, I didn't know that when I watched it.